0: Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. In the late 1040s, we don't know exactly when, Tuvia Ben Moshe, a prolific Karaite Jewish scholar living in Jerusalem but originally from Byzantium, wrote a letter to his daughter in Egypt. Writing in Judeo-Arabic, he told his daughter that he was successful in doing well financially— But he lamented that, because of your mother's doing, he wrote, his daughter was living in poverty, adding, I pray to God that he will not forget her sin. Toward the end of the letter, Tuvia presented his daughter with a difficult choice. I succeeded and your mother failed, praise be God, he wrote. And now, my daughter, I do not know with whom you are. Are you with the Jews, your father's people, or with your mother and the Gentiles? And I will tell you this, my daughter. If they are willing to sell you to me, my daughter, I will buy you and rescue you from their hands. I intend to leave after the holiday to Byzantium, to my homeland and my family. So let me know in advance what is in your mind, and I shall figure what to do in your matter. Tuvia's letter, to which we have access thanks to the treasure trove of medieval Jewish documents from the Middle East and North Africa, known as the Cairo Geniza, provides just enough detail to piece together a backstory. Tuvia married
1: a woman. We don't know her name or her identity. Maybe he married her while
0: in Jerusalem. This is Moshe Yagur, a fellow at the Frankel Center, whose research explores the social histories of Jews living in Arab lands in and around the Mediterranean during the Middle Ages.
1: But anyway, at a certain point, Tuvia's wife converted to another religion, probably to Islam. And she later moved from Jerusalem to Egypt and took their daughter with her. And she raised her as a non-Jew in her non-Jewish community in Egypt.
0: Years pass, and at some point in 1040, Tuvia writes the letter to his now-grown daughter, a letter, Yagur says, that's significant for a few reasons.
1: So, first of all, we get a quick glimpse to one specific family's emotions and travails revolving around conversion. In most cases, we just have like a legal, a technical legal query. What do we do if a convert does so and so? And now we have the emotions, the curses, uh, the threats in a specific family.
0: More broadly, the letter highlights a complicated reality for at least some medieval Jewish families in Muslim lands. A reality where one half of a married pair, in this case the wife, leaves the Jewish fold by converting to another religion, most likely Islam. And what's most fascinating, Yagur says, is that Tuvia's letter suggests that conversion does not necessarily sever family ties. In fact, Tuvia seems to suggest the possibility for reconciliation and a return to the fold, at least for his daughter.
1: Tuvia writes to his daughter, so how does he know where to send the letter to? And how does he know what is the situation of the daughter and her mother? And he writes to her daughter that she can verify his good condition by asking her maternal aunt, which means the sister of the converted mother. So this supposes that the daughter, who was already raised as a non-Jew in Egypt, has access to her still Jewish aunt in Jerusalem. And Tuvia has access to his daughter in Egypt. And the, the option of choosing between judaism and allegedly islam or christianity never mind but the non-jewish religion which was uh, the the woman converted to the option of choice is on the table it's not something that you do not think of it's not something that it's undoable it's a lovable option
0: according to jewish law a jewish person who converts to another religion is still a jew And if he or she converts and becomes an apostate while married to a Jew, the marriage remains legal and binding despite the conversion. In Tuvia's case, he apparently was officially divorced from his apostate wife. But other letters from the Cairo Geniza demonstrate that rabbinic discourse about how apostasy affected marriage and child-rearing wasn't just legal theory. It spoke to real-life situations. For example, another letter describes a situation where a converted husband and his still-Jewish wife have a son and want to have him circumcised.
1: So circumcision is a marker of identity, and if the child was born on the Sabbath, according to the Jewish law, he has to be circumcised on the eighth day, which means the next week, the next Sabbath. So do we now circumcise him on the Sabbath, or maybe we can wait until tomorrow and not desecrate the Sabbath for, for this
0: questionable person. The baby is questionable, that is, because like Tuvia's daughter, his religious identity is unclear. According to Jewish law, the boy is Jewish because his mother is Jewish. But his father's apostasy raises the question of whether he's Jewish enough to warrant desecrating the Sabbath by having him circumcised on that day.
1: And we see this question recurring time and again, which means that people really were wondering, people were troubled by this these children, because these children posed the question in the mo- most acute manner: Is he or is he not Jewish? What, what is this liminal stage? What do? What happens if we have interreligious families?
0: The letter is interesting also because it suggests that the religiously mixed couple wants their child to be circumcised on the Sabbath,
1: especially by the Jewish circumcised. They could circumcise him on a Sunday, or in the Sabbath, but by a Muslim circumciser but no they want to have it according to the tradition that they know the jewish tradition and by maybe a jewish circumciser that they know i don't know or the one who is available in the neighborhood so they are again it's an example of how the social circles determine much of the identity not everything and of course conversion is important but it's not the only thing that it's important
0: On that score, it's worth noting by way of comparison that the treatment of Jewish converts in Europe was much harsher. Jews who converted to Christianity had a more difficult time remaining connected to their former Jewish communities. And the possibility of returning to Judaism was a more distant prospect compared to Jews who converted in Muslim lands. Why was that the case?
1: So if they lived in the same neighborhoods, they were not in ghettos, and they had almost no limitations on occupation, and they were intimate with with Muslims and Christians, maybe, I cannot guarantee, but maybe this also affected the way that they treated Jewish converts If I'm in good relations with born Muslims and born Christians, why should I hate, quote-unquote, why should I excommunicate the person who is my cousin a converted? Why should I treat him more harshly than I treat my Muslim neighbor?
0: Now, as the letter about the circumcision issue shows, the more open attitude toward Jewish apostasy in Muslim lands put the children of couples of mixed religion in the awkward position of being neither fully Jewish nor clearly non-Jewish. They were somewhere in between. Tuvia's daughter was in a similar position.
1: Tuvia allegedly should have said, my daughter, you're Jewish, you were born as Jew, never mind what your mother did, come back to me. He doesn't say it. So he doesn't consider her as non-Jewish, but he also doesn't consider her as fully, unquestionably Jewish.
0: Now, again, what's noteworthy is that the conversion of a child's mother or father didn't automatically or necessarily determine the child's fate, at least concerning their religious identity. In the view of Abraham Maimonides, the son of the famous Moses Maimonides, it was mostly up to the child. He says, according to these children,
1: we cannot decide their identity. We will see
0: what they choose when they grow up. Yet another letter from the Geniza provides a window onto the ramifications of Jewish apostasy from a woman's perspective. As the letter details, a Jewish man converted to Islam, but his wife did not ask for a bill of divorce. Only later, when her husband was about to embark on a business trip to India, did she change her mind.
1: Then she said, no, you have to give me a bill of divorce before. And this was a common problem in prolonged journeys, Sometimes the husbands disappeared and then if we have no clue that the husband died, then in Jewish law the woman is considered what we call chained. She is aguna. She, is, she cannot remarry to another person.
0: And so a woman might ask for a bill of divorce as a sort of insurance policy to be used just in case her husband never returned from his voyage. And the point is, as the letter shows, the woman whose husband was bound for India was okay with being married to an apostate husband, but did not want to be tethered for life to a husband who disappeared. And sure enough, in this case, the husband did disappear, leaving his wife without a husband, but unable to remarry, at least according to Jewish law, which is why the letter was written in Arabic, most likely to appeal to a Muslim judge. In Islamic
1: law, there is a condition that after several years, this woman can marry again. So we can see how this is a Jewish woman married to a Jew who converted to Islam, staying married to him, and later addressing a Muslim judge that according to Muslim law, she, will, she could be
0: remarried. We don't know if a Muslim judge actually ruled in this case, or if a Muslim judge could rule in a case like this. There's some speculation that he referred the case to a Jewish judge, which is how the letter ended up in the Geniza. In any case, the larger point, Yagur says, is that issues of identity are rarely simple. We may tend to think of complex identities that are multiple and variable as a modern concept, and that identity in the Middle Ages was simpler and more fixed but that's a misconception.
1: I think that this study, and of course other studies, it's not the only one, but other studies, but this study as well, shows that this situation uh, in what we call the Middle Ages was much more complex, much more varied. We shouldn't imagine the, the Middle Ages as this dark and long period when everything was the same and all Jews were pious and observant and boundaries were clear and everything. On the contrary, we are dealing here with human beings, with social situations. And these are always essentially complex and blurred and changing and dynamic. I think this is what makes all of this interesting, at least for me. And I personally believe that a better understanding of the Jewish past, the Jewish history, and the issues that bothered individual Jews and Jewish communities in the past can not only enrich our worldview and provide us with a better understanding of the past, but also perhaps they can enrich our understanding and our notion and even our possibilities of Jewish identity or even identities today.
0: That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. You can find the Frankly Judaic podcast anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And we hope you'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.